Today's scripture reading is out of First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Just as a way of uh, introducing this a little bit, um, if you've done any computer programming, you'll recognize uh, this as an if-then statement. Uh, if this is true, then this is true. Um, in verse 26, it says that the last enemy that was con- that Christ conquered was death. And uh, so as I read this, follow along, and pay attention to those if-then statements. Starting at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we only have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this hope. Lord, we see that Christ has conquered death in the hereafter. It gives us hope in the present to live for him. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Gene. It's good to have with us Frank and Irene back from Florida and Gordon and Joe back from Florida. We rejoice to have you back with us, with our our family. We missed you. And good good to see you guys this morning. Also, be thinking and praying for uh, Alan, Missy, and family as uh, they continue to grieve the loss of Katie. But... Rejoicing also in her new life. She's fully alive in Christ, in, in him, before him, and we rejoice in that hope. <clears throat> but good, good to be here this morning, and I'll just share I, right up front. I'm going to apologize for all the coffee I'm going to do. As I uh, continue to recover from COVID about three weeks ago, that cough doesn't want to go away. It, it likes me. It's friendly. Uh, and so it's, I'm sure I'll be doing much of it this morning, so I just <clears throat> apologize for that right, right up front. <clears throat> our, our text this morning, as Gene just read, is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 12 through 20. And what we're going to be doing this morning is, is a little bit of a mini-series, a bit of a pause from the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning and next Sunday, we're going to be considering what difference does a resurrection make? What's the big deal about the resurrection? What's the big deal about Easter? And so next Sunday morning at 7 a.m., <coughs> uh, Chuck is going to be preaching on indestructible life that's ours through the resurrection. I'll be preaching on First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 58, which is a verse I just love. If you just want to turn there real quick. First Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I'll be preaching on that next Sunday morning. But this morning, what I want to do is kind of open this series 
by considering uh, a world without Easter? What if there was no resurrection? Uh, What if Christ is still in the grave? In some ways, I'm going to be honest, as a pastor, I feel awful doing this uh, because it's kind of dark. Not kind of dark, it is dark. It's gloomy. It's difficult to think through. It's miserable. Uh, But my hope in doing this is that it will help us treasure the resurrection. That it will help us uh, rejoice in what we truly have. And and maybe you can't believe the next Sunday is Easter and you're kind of thinking, I'm not feeling it. Right? I know around Christmas a bunch of us were saying, it doesn't feel like Christmas. I'm not feeling this. Well, maybe that's you this morning as we are considering the resurrection. Maybe you're just feeling that thought and having that thought. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not feeling the resurrection. <clears throat> Thank you, Dwayne. <clears throat> that I hope this will help you treasure uh, and just rejoice in what we have <clears throat> by recognizing what we wouldn't have uh, if we didn't have the resurrection. So look, look at verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12 says, <clears throat> Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, <clears throat> that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now that's very interesting because Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, the very church that he, by God's grace and through the preaching of the gospel, founded, formed, established. <laughs> and yet, <clears throat> some of those within that very church, within that, uh, that, that body of believers, were questioning or not believing in the resurrection of the dead. How can that be? Right? He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? We don't believe in the resurrection. People don't rise from the dead. <laughs> now, I've <clears throat> known people that I've spoken with uh, over the years, ha- having been in ministry for roughly 20 years now, give or take, <laughs> who have said to me after I preached, I don't agree or believe what you preached. <clears throat> and that, that's all well and fine. <clears throat> Usually it's when I preach on the doctrines of grace that seems to get people a little upset. <clears throat> and that's okay. God's word has its way of doing that. <clears throat> but I've had that before, and you preach God's word, and people will say to you, I don't believe what you're preaching. So it's very possible for people to sit in an audience, be, be in a church <clears throat> like this, who just don't believe. <clears throat> in fact, I knew a, a young man up in the, up in the Upper Peninsula <clears throat> who would quite regularly come to worship services and he would sing the songs and he would talk with the people and he'd listen to the preaching of the word but if you were to talk with him he would tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is an atheist <clears throat> so it is very possible <clears throat> to uh, be in a church week after week after week be be in a sense <coughs> a part of that body and yet not not believe <clears throat> Uh, so Paul is addressing that, and the question that kind of came to my mind as I studied that in verse 12 is, how, how did they get there? <clears throat> how is it they came to be a part of this body uh, if, they, if they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead? <clears throat> Maybe they were Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees? Uh, as you read through the Gospels, uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and Christ would often debate with them. <laughs> Uh, more likely, I, my, my opinion would be that they're still under the influence of Greek philosophy. Remember, this is Corinth. Um, this is where Paul in Acts 17 preached at Mars Hill and, and the philosophers and debated with some of them. And a lot of them didn't like what he had to say. Some did, praise God. But Greek philosophy uh, has this, this popular teaching that the body is evil. <clears throat> and that essentially... Uh, the body is a prison for the soul. 
So Greek philosophy would teach that when death came, that's a good thing because now the soul was free from its bondage. <clears throat> the soul was free <clears throat> from its prison, is liberated from the body. <clears throat> and so the Greek philosophers in this way would welcome death. <clears throat> but the idea of a bodily resurrection was deeply offensive to them because, again, the body is evil to them. <clears throat> So perhaps uh, some of these Corinthian believers have still under that false way of thinking. Like many of us today, how easy it is to be uh, inundated and, and, and hit by and, and affected by the culture and not even realize it. And I think that's a very real possibility that of what is happening here, that these New believers in Christ were still drinking from the philosophy of the world. They needed to put off wrong thinking and replace it with biblical thinking. And again, I don't think that's any different with any of us here. There's not one of us in this room <laughs> who has perfect theology, right? Not one of us here. We're all in a state of learning and growing. Uh, we all have areas where we still think wrongly, uh, obviously myself included there. And we need to change. We need to grow. That's why we appreciate God's word, right? It corrects our thinking. It shows us where we're in error. It transforms us. It renews us as we submit our minds to the scriptures. <clears throat> so at any rate, we don't know exactly uh, how it came to be at the church of Corinth that <laughs> uh, they were denying the resurrection, but we do know that it did come to be. That, so what does Paul do with them? I think it's very helpful to see what Paul does. He doesn't get mad or frustrated or angry or call them foolish. Well, actually, he does do that in, in, a, in a few verses, but not right off the, right off the bat. He, he reasons with them, right? He reasons with them. Uh, he takes their logic to its inevitable conclusion Step by step, he shows the devastating results. Uh, surely as night follows day, right? The devastating results if you deny the resurrection. That this is what plays out. This, this is what would be true <coughs> if you deny the resurrection. Step by step, he shows them how that position, denying the resurrection, doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture, doesn't line up with the gospel that he preached to them, and in his end leads to misery. You could say uh, that Paul is playing theological dominoes. <clears throat> uh, he's showing them how if, if, if you knock down this domino, the resurrection of the dead, the rest of Christianity goes with it one by one by one by one by one. And so he's, he's in a sense, playing theological dominoes. <coughs> and as I shared before, in many ways, this is a dark passage. It's a dark, it's a dark picture uh, of, of what would be true in a world without Easter but it's also a great opportunity to treasure the life-changing truth of the resurrection. <clears throat> so we're going to dive in here. We're going to look at some of those theological dominoes. <coughs> there are seven of them that fall, and the first one is found in verse 13. If you're following, <clears throat> if you're taking notes, it's provided in the insert uh, in, in the bulletin for you. But you can see the, the first theological domino to fall <coughs> is that there's no resurrection at all. And so we're not sure, uh, looking back at, at this, we're not sure if the Corinthians were denying the resurrection of Christ specifically, or were they denying the resurrection of the dead generally. Uh, we're not sure which one it is. It's, it's difficult to tell. 
But either way, they're denying one of those, and whichever one they're denying, it doesn't matter, because if you deny one, you deny the other. They, they, they're a package deal. And so Paul says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, right, generally, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ, <coughs> specifically Christ, has been raised. And he says the same thing in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So Paul is pointing out the first point of logic to deny the resurrection generally. If you're going to deny the bodily resurrection of the dead, then you have to, by implication, (coughs) specifically deny the resurrection of Christ. That those things are a package deal. And if you deny the resurrection of the dead and you deny the resurrection of Christ, then there's any and all hope whatsoever of life after death is gone. And again, Greek philosophy of that day did not deny life after death. What they denied was bodily life after death. They believed that we would be forever these disembodied spirits. And Paul is trying to argue against that to help them to see <coughs> we will not be disembodied spirits forever. We will be forever united body and soul. But here in verse 13, the first domino to fall is to show that it is impossible to argue that Christ rose from the dead or that Christians won't and vice versa. It's impossible to deny the resurrection and still believe in Christ being raised from the dead. You can't have one or the other. They both stand or fall together. The second one, second theological domino to fall (coughs) is preaching in vain. Preaching becomes vain. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And by, by preaching here, it's not meant so much the act, as, uh, like what I'm doing right now, but the content of your preaching. Or you could even say the result of your preaching. Uh, Paul has traveled over the known world preaching the gospel. He shares that gospel right in verse 3. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's, that's the gospel. If anyone ever asks you what is the gospel, uh, that, that's it right there in a nutshell, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and three days later rose from the dead. That's the gospel. (coughs) That's the good news that Paul has traveled the known world preaching and proclaiming at every opportunity. But if Christ is not risen, our preaching is what? It's vain. It's without content. It's empty. It has no purpose. It's fruitless. It's void of effect. It's characterized by nothingness. It does not matter how sincerely or persuasively one is able to preach. (coughs) It doesn't matter at all. If Christ is not raised, uh, it is wasted energy. And not just our preaching, but quite frankly, our counseling, our teaching, our evangelism, our missions, all of it is a colossal waste of of effort. It's all useless if the resurrection is not true. It is a bunch of wishful thinking because it has no content, no basis without the resurrection. It's not something that actually took place. So preaching is vain. (coughs) It follows also 
that our faith is in vain, verse 14 goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised from, has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. He says the same thing in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So you see, you remove the resurrection. <coughs> you get rid of the resurrection. There is nothing left of Christianity. There's nothing left. There's nothing to believe in. There's nothing left to preach. Nothing worth saying. The whole system of Christianity stands or falls on Christ being risen from the dead. (coughs) The divinity of Christ finds its proof in the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Well, catch this, Romans 1.4, by his resurrection from the dead. So his resurrection from the dead was proof of the divinity or that Jesus was God. But Christ's sovereignty also depends upon the resurrection. Romans 14 verse 9 says, for to this end Christ died And lived again. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Why? That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Christ's sovereignty, or you could say his lordship, is dependent upon the resurrection. The same is true of our justification. Our justification hangs on Christ's resurrection. In Romans chapter 4, Verse 25, it says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So without the resurrection, there is no justification. The same is true of our regeneration. We are made alive. We're given new life in Christ. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How did he do this? Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So without, without the resurrection, there is no regeneration. We are not given new life. We are not born again. According to Romans 8.11, our very resurrection depends upon Jesus. For it says there in Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. But that's not true if Christ was not risen. So you see, if there is no resurrection, Christianity does what? It crumbles. It utterly crumbles. Have you ever heard someone say, (coughs) it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you what? You sincerely believe it to be true. <clears throat> doesn't doesn't matter what you place your faith in. As long as you're genuine about it and you're passionate about it and you really believe that, that that's what matters. <coughs> that's nonsense. That's putting your faith in faith. And quite frankly, that's the gospel that our world preaches day in and day out. Believe what you want to believe. Believe it sincerely. Believe it genuinely. Really really be passionate about that. Don't let anyone question that. They put their faith in faith. 
Like, I can believe all day long that if I'm really, really sick, that if I eat lots of ice cream, <coughs> that'll make me better. <coughs> I'm sure that might make my throat feel better uh, for, for a little bit, but and that would be wonderful if ice cream really had that magical ability to do that, uh, but it does not. Faith in ice cream <laughs> does not heal. You can have faith in a rock that a rock will save you, but that rock will not and cannot save you. Please, please, please hear this. This is critical in, in the day and age in which we live, that it is not your faith that saves you. <coughs> it is the object of your faith that saves you. It's the content of your faith that saves you. What, what are you placing your faith in? That's, that's, that's the question. That, that's what really matters and we need to dig on and think about is, what are you placing your faith in? Not just that you have faith. We all have faith. Atheists have faith. But what are you placing your faith in? That is the ultimate question. And what Paul is bringing out here is it doesn't matter how much faith or how sincere your faith is in Christ. Your faith is vain if Christ is not risen from the dead. <clears throat> You might as well try and cross the Atlantic Ocean out of a boat made out of paper <clears throat> and put your faith in a Christ who is not risen. <laughs> you might as well try and empty all the oceans with a bucket. You'd have more success that way than placing your faith in a Savior who is not risen from the dead. <clears throat> that is Paul's point there. If Christ is not risen, we are no better off than those who place their faith in ice cream. Or a rock. We've been conned. We've been snowballed. If the resurrection is not true, Christianity is a pipe dream. It's a hoax. It's a mirage. It's a bunch of wishful thinking. Take out the resurrection. Faith is vain. <coughs> next one Paul would have us to know is that the next theological domino that falls is found in verse 15. And that is the slander of the character of God. Or you could say we become false witnesses. <coughs> and I don't know if there's any... Um, uh, Agatha Christie fans in here. I, I know that my wife has enjoyed uh, reading <clears throat> some of some of her novels. <coughs> She's well known as a, as writing murder mysteries, right? And one of her uh, mysteries and her detective, her private detective, who I can never pronounce right. I don't know if I'm ever saying that right. P o i r o t. I don't know if that's Poirot, Poirot, Poi something. But that that detective, <clears throat> at the end of the chapter, he's figured it out, right? The whodunit, or whodunit mysteries. He's been interviewing a number of different people and seeking to discover what's, what's been going on and, again, who whodunit. And he finds the villain to be Nurse Hopkins. <coughs> and he finds the villain to be her because at one point in her story, uh, she shared, he asked her why there was a cut on her wrist. And she said, well, she got that cut on her wrist because of a uh, rose uh, bush that had thorns on it, and it pricked her, it cut her, and therefore uh, that's why she got that cut. So uh, this detective, being a good detective, goes and checks out the, the, the bush, the rose bush that Nurse Hopkins had mentioned, and lo and behold, that's not a rose bush that grows thorns, <clears throat> which I didn't know that. That there were, were such a thing as roses that don't grow thorns, but there are. See, we learned, we learned something else something else today. <coughs> you guys probably already knew that. I didn't. 
I'm not a horticulturist or whatever that word is. <clears throat> so the point in, this, in, this, in the story is because the detective discovered that Nurse Hopkins was lying about that, what's that do to everything else that she said? Brings it all into question, right? The second he found out Nurse Hopkins had lied about the rose bush, well, what else is she lying about? Everything else is suspect. I've heard judges do the same and hear the same when it's discovered that one who's giving testimony has lied. All of a sudden, everything they have said is suspect. It's called into question. It's doubted. Well, the same is true here. I think that's what Paul is saying in verse 15. If, if Paul has told a lie about Jesus Christ being alive after he died, if, if, if Jesus didn't really arise from the dead, then you've caught him in a lie and, and you might as well realize that the whole of his evidence, everything he said, is suspect, right? <laughs> Suddenly it must be questioned. <clears throat> and not just him, but all of the apostles who testified to the resurrection. And in the book of Acts alone, uh, the apostles declared the resurrection of Christ over and over again. In fact, Acts, the book of Acts, makes mention of the res- resurrection 145 times. <laughs> That's a lot. And so 145 times, again and again and again through the book of Acts, the message is, Jesus has risen. It is true. He has risen. He is our Lord, and he is our Savior. But if the resurrection is not true, if there is no resurrection, then these men cannot be considered trustworthy, honorable, and sincere, but rather they are deceivers. (laughs) If they're wrong about that, what else are they wrong about? They're lying about that. What else are they lying about? And it's not just true about Paul and the apostles. It's also true about the Lord Jesus Christ. For he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If Jesus was wrong about that, if he was lied about that, what else did he lie about? What else was he wrong about? You see how it all crumbles. (coughs) It all crumbles. They become false witnesses, slanderers of God himself. See what I said about kind of how dark... (coughs) passages. It gets worse before it gets better. (coughs) Look at verse 17. The next domino to fall is found in verse 17, for it says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and what? You are still in your sins. (coughs) Paul has just declared earlier in verse 3, the good news that Christ died for our sins. And rose from the dead as God's amen uh, to Jesus' finished work on the cross. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it's all a lie. Follow the logic. If there is no general resurrection, there is no specific resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has power over him and has defeated him. And if death has power over Jesus, then Jesus is not God And if Jesus is not God, he did not offer a complete sacrifice for our sins. (laughs) And if Jesus cannot and did not offer a complete sacrifice for our sins, then our sins, my sin and your sin, is still not paid for. It has not been redeemed. It has not been cleansed. And if I'm still in my sins, I have no assurance 
I have no justification. <coughs> I have no forgiveness. I have no peace of mind. I have no fellowship with God. All of it is imaginary. All of it is futile. <coughs> All of it is not true. There's no adoption, no reconciliation, no propitiation, no expiation, no atonement, no heaven, no salvation. In point of fact, we are still all dead in our sins and under the wrath of God <coughs> without hope of salvation. We will experience no mercy and no love and no compassion and no forgiveness when we stand before him. If the resurrection is not true, when we stand before God, we will face and endure the penalty for every sin we have thought and done and committed. <coughs> no assurance whatsoever. <clears throat> and Paul continues, I wish I could be done, but I'm not. <coughs> The next domino that falls is the loss of future hope. <coughs> Verse 18 says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We will all rot in our graves. Our loved ones who have gone on before us, our moms, our dads, our children, our spouses, friends, and family, <coughs> we will never see them again. <clears throat> They're still in their grave. The joys and hopes have all been imaginary. That expectation, again, of seeing loved ones is an empty fancy. <coughs> so Paul brings it all together with this last domino in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So I think Paul brings it to its final resting point and we see the ultimate despair that falls on us if Christ has not risen. The whole of Christian life is a worthless, useless, existential superstition, <coughs> a meaningless deception. If Christ has not risen, then Christianity is nothing more than a cruel game in which we all lose. No resurrection, no hope. <coughs> Anyone is better off than a Christian if Christ has not risen. It doesn't take much to think about that, to see that. The entire Christian life revolves around Christ. All around the world, even today, there are many who are suffering for their faith in Christ. We're gathered here this morning because of our faith in Christ. No doubt throughout the week you will open the scriptures and read them because of your love for Christ. You'll pray much because of your love for Christ. Uh, you'll invest money in missions. You'll give money to the church because of your love for Christ. But if Christ has not risen, what a colossal waste. <clears throat> There's a well-known saying out there, YOLO, right? You only live once. <coughs> if you're a Christian, that makes no sense. If Christ is truly risen. <clears throat> but if Christ is not risen, as Christians, we are to be pitied because not only are we suffering for a Christ who didn't rise from the dead, but we're missing out on the joy that this world has to offer. Right? If Christianity isn't true, then we should be like the rest of the world, throwing ourselves into all the pleasures this world supposedly has for us, right? Yet because we follow Christ, we deny the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. We deny that 
with our faith fixed on a future city that is better than what this world offers, right? But if Christ isn't risen, then we are to be pitied because we are missing out on the best this world has to offer, which isn't much, but it's what it has to offer. <coughs> we are wretched. Sometimes I hear Christians say, and I know they're well-meaning when they say it, but they'll say things like this, that even if Christianity isn't true, it's still better to be a Christian. <clears throat> I'd rather be a Christian even if it isn't true. <coughs> you realize the Bible fights against that? The scripture right here is telling you, no, it's not. <clears throat> it's not better to be a Christian even if it's not true. If Jesus is still dead, you're just playing games. <clears throat> Your preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. You're guilty of slander. You have no assurance. You have no future. Without the resurrection, Christianity crumbles. A Christian is left with nothing but despair. <clears throat> you see how dark this passage is? As Paul brings the logical uh, implications out of denying the resurrection. And you see why it's difficult for me as, as a pastor who uh, loves and preaches the resurrection to stand up here and preach it because it's dark. It's very dark. Sadly, millions upon millions upon millions, our friends, our families, our co-workers live with this kind of thinking day in and day out, don't they? That the world around us thinks that we are to be pitied. <coughs> There's an apologetic there that's very valuable, actually, as you discuss the faith with, with unbelievers. And you can help them see that you agree with them that if Christianity, if Christ really isn't risen from the dead, I agree with you, we are to be pitied. This is ridiculous. But it also gives you an opportunity to help them consider the opposite, which they rarely do. <coughs> But you can see why, if the resurrection isn't true, if we're wrong and the world is right, you can also see why they're hurting the way they're hurting. Because there's no hope. There's no meaning for existence. There's no meaning for life. What's the meaning of life if Christ has not risen from the dead? It's all rather miserable, isn't it? <laughs> That's why the world is so desperately seeking something to dull the pain, <clears throat> to fill their life with noise. It was the philosopher Pascal who once argued that if he could get uh, uh, a bunch of people to sit in a room and sit quietly without any noise for an hour, he could get them all to believe in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it's an interesting point because what he's saying is if we have to sit there and just think, nothing to do but sit there and think in silence for an hour, inevitably your mind starts to go towards eternity. Inevitably, you start to think about more than just the here and the now, which is where our world lives, right? In the here and the now. Our world is fixed on how can I find immediate pleasure, not denying pleasure for the future pleasure found in Christ. Our world is all about the pleasure now. Give it to me now. And they don't want to think, and so they fill their life with noise. So they don't have to think about what could possibly be coming down the pipeline. So Pascal argued that if we could just get people to sit still for an hour and just, just not have anything but their own thoughts that they would be driven to think about eternity. I think that's an interesting thought. I think he's right. <clears throat> I think our world is filled with noise because people don't want to think about that. <clears throat> it's all rather terrible. <coughs> and I hope that what this has done in some ways is helped you realize your neighbors, your your family, your friends are living with this every day, that if as I preach this and the Lord has used this to help you see how miserable it would be if Christ has not risen, 
then let that flow over into your relationships with your lost loved ones and your family and your coworkers. That's what they're dealing with every day. And how that should burden us for the lost. And how that should help us be patient with them and understanding with them and have fruitful conversations with them, yes? There's a deep, rich apologetic here. <coughs> but thankfully, praise God, Paul doesn't stop at verse 19. <clears throat> I'm not going to lie, I was partly tempted because of my voice, but also for other reasons, to stop at verse 19 and pick it up next week with verse 20. <coughs> and I thought about doing that because this also gives us an opportunity to think about how the disciples felt. Jesus just died on the cross, right? Good Friday is coming, right? Jesus died on the cross and he's buried. That wasn't supposed to happen, they think. And you even have the, the disciples, the two disciples on Emmaus Road, and Jesus, who's resurrected, and they don't know that, finds them. And they don't know it's Jesus, right? And Jesus is talking with them. And I love the passage where it says, Jesus opened up the scriptures and explained things to them. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he unfolded the scriptures to us? <coughs> That's spiritual heartburn. I hope we all have that spiritual heartburn. <coughs> That's good heartburn, not the other kind of heartburn that keeps you up all night. <clears throat> but remember how despondent and filled with despair uh, those, those disciples were as they say to Christ, not knowing that he's the Christ, that we thought this man was his Messiah and he died, he was crucified, and he's dead. And they're despondent and filled with despair. And so I think there's a lot of value on, on Friday night with a good Friday to try and relate to that on how the disciples felt on Saturday, how miserable they must have been. How heartbroken and filled with despair they must have been. All hope dashed. Then how wonderful Sunday becomes. Where Christ appears. And we read in verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. <clears throat> he is the first fruits. <coughs> of those who have fallen asleep. It's like Paul couldn't stand it any longer. <laughs> He's brought to the, the logical conclusion what it would mean if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And it's all he can take to get that out. It's all I can take to say it this morning. And he just had to write verse 20. He couldn't help himself. And he's bursting with joy, bursting in praise. It's like a blast of the trumpet of victory. Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead. The sun has risen. Darkness has scattered. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. <clears throat> first fruits is perhaps not a term we're familiar with. <coughs> uh, first fruits just simply refers to the, the first part of any harvest. And if there's a first fruits, there has to be a second fruits, right? And a third fruits and a fourth fruits and, and, and so on. And another implication of that is the first fruits are indicative of what that second fruit and third fruit and fourth fruit will be like. If the first fruit was good, second fruit's going to be good. If the first fruit's bad, and it's going to be bad. <laughs> another way you could think about verse 20 is that the first fruits or the resurrection of Christ is the pattern and the pledge of future resurrections. By pattern, I mean this, that Jesus' resurrection body bore the same general characteristics as before, <clears throat> so will ours, that Jesus' resurrection body was recognizable by those who loved him. 
so it will be with us. This is wonderful to think about and flies in the face of Greek philosophy. <coughs> Remember that Greek philosophy, what they teach? They taught we will forever be these disembodied souls. And I'm not going to lie, I've met a fair amount of Christians who think the same way, who seem to think that we're going to be forever these ethereal spirits floating around in heaven for eternity. It's a very common thought, actually. <coughs> Sadly. Many consider the body inconsequential. <clears throat> and what we see in verse 20 is we will not forever be disembodied spirits. <clears throat> we will have real bodies with real minds, affections, and wills. <clears throat> when Jesus returns and we are caught up to be with him, we will be given resurrection bodies. Amen? <laughs> and these resurrection bodies will have eyes that can see Jesus. And hands that can touch Jesus. And feet that can run to Jesus. And minds that can think and dwell on Jesus. Lips that can praise Jesus. I want nothing to do with this thought that will be these ethereal disembodied spirits. That's nonsense. We will have bodies with resurrected bodies with which to praise him and adore him and worship him forever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus is the pattern of our resurrection bodies. What a wonderful truth. He is also the pledge, which is to say that his resurrection guarantees that all of us who by faith are trusting in him will also one day have resurrection bodies. Jesus is risen. What does that mean? <laughs> that means Jesus has the pledge and the pattern. What that means is for those who, whose bodies have been riddled by cancer. That when Christ returns, those bodies will be cancer-free. Holy made new. What does that mean? That, that, that means for those of us with loved ones or who have known others who have died from Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia. They call it the long goodbye, right? It means when the Lord returns with those resurrection bodies that they'll have minds that are renewed and transformed and able to be fixed and focused on the glory of their Savior. And keep going with that, right? Those who have had serious emotional trauma, maybe PTSD or, or, or severe mental difficulties, maybe those with Down syndrome, <coughs> they will all be changed and transformed. If you've had COPD or maybe if this cough never goes away again for me, <coughs> or for those who have, who have died from breathing issues, they'll have new lungs and be able to Sing loud praises to their God and King. That's what this means. He's our pledge. He's our pattern. We're going to see these bodies transformed. <clears throat> Charles Wesley captures this well in his song. I can't sing it. It's a song that's super high-pitched. Uh, but it says, Soar we now where Christ has led, Fouling our exalted head, Made like him, like him we rise. Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus is the pledge. He is the pattern of our resurrection. I love the words of the Puritan, Thomas Watson, 
We are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. <laughs> That's a wonderful truth. <clears throat> a wonderful, wonderful truth. So brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this. Christ, in fact, has been risen. <clears throat> what does that mean? That means our preaching is not futile. <clears throat> that means our preaching is not wasted energy. That means that preaching is the most momentous activity on the face of the earth. It's more powerful and meaningful than anything else that happens. Preaching is not futile. Preaching is filled with the power of God and the Spirit of God and never, ever, ever returns void. That's what that means. It also means that our faith is not in vain. Far from it, our faith is firm, firmly placed in the one true object that can save us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that faith is only as strong as the object it is put in. You can have 100% faith in thin ice, but your faith is only as strong as that ice. Our faith is firmly rooted in Christ, who is in fact risen from the dead. <coughs> it also means that our sins are forgiven. They're cleansed, they're washed, they're wiped away forever. And in its place, we have been justified. We are justified. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. God's wrath has been fully propitiated by Christ, the great propitiator. And therefore, we can have hope. We can have peace because that means our glory, our future is secure. <coughs> Christ is coming again and we will rise with him. We can have hope and peace as we stand at the cemetery of our loved ones who were died trusting in the Lord that we are standing on resurrection ground and that this is not the end, that this brother or sister in Christ will rise from the dead and be given new bodies, transformed bodies, changed in the twinkling of an eye and that right now, even now, they are in the presence of their Savior whom they loved, filled with his presence, his power and his joy. This also means that we are not the most miserable, but we should be the most envy, envied, enviable. <coughs> right? If all of this is true, Christian, if all of this is true, our lives should be filled with meaning and purpose and joy. Yes? We should be, as verse 58, as it goes on to say, therefore be steadfast, be immovable, be unshakable, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. We'll unpack that more next week. But treasure his resurrection. <clears throat> be changed by the resurrection. Sing about it. Talk about it. Meditate on it. Uh, do all you can to, to make much of it. And if you feel yourself taking it for granted, I hope that this sermon has kind of woken you up. But <laughs> if you're still struggling, and what's the big deal about the resurrection, come back to this passage and camp on it and don't get away from it till the Spirit jars you awake to the wonders of the resurrection. <clears throat> And I wonder if there are perhaps even any here this morning who right now, uh, through the preaching of the word, which never returns void, you've recognized, because you don't have faith in Christ, you've recognized how miserable and awful and meaningless life is apart from Christ. And the Spirit is working in your heart. It's convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. And I would encourage you even now to start treasuring Christ, to put your faith in Christ today. 
who has in fact risen from the dead and is in fact our pledge and is our pattern for future resurrections. Don't go another day living in a world without Easter. Don't go another day <coughs> living in a world without Easter. <clears throat> Amen? <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, <clears throat> our hearts this morning have been exposed to <clears throat> some truth that perhaps is hard to, to think about or dwell upon. Perhaps we even have some loved ones here this morning who we know are not placing their faith in Christ and <clears throat> are therefore still lost in their sins and have no eternal security or headed to a Christless eternity in hell. <laughs> Lord, I pray that the truth of this passage is, as it lays out uh, so, so mightily and powerfully by your spirit uh, the reality of a, a Christless or resurrectionless future, that that would just compel each one of us here to be fervent, faithful, brokenhearted evangelists that we would be bold and unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation. Please use this text in our hearts in this way. Use it also uh, to stir up our affections for you to <coughs> treasure more than we ever even thought possible <clears throat> the glory and wonders of the resurrection. Forgive us that we are so easily distracted. Forgive us that we so easily forget. <clears throat> so Forgive us that we are so easily enthralled and captured by the things of this world. <clears throat> Give us hearts that long and hearts that are entranced by the glory of the resurrection of Christ. May that truth over time as we submit to it transform us moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour as we have these eyes full of faith in you. <laughs> and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat>